This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is playing the cards dealt to you. In the first half, Michael and Steele shares her address, Choose to Trust the Lord. Then in the second half, Ramona O. Hopkins speaks on a miracle in the making, finding the meaning in adversity. My dear brothers and sisters, I'm honored to speak to you today and share my witness of the Savior and the good news of His gospel. I want to acknowledge first that we are gathered today in this valley that is the traditional homeland of indigenous peoples called today the Utes, the Paiutes, and the Shoshone nations, among others. I honor their resilience, and I'm thankful for their preservation as peoples. I believe the Lord has preserved much essential truth in preserving the indigenous peoples and their cultures. Just as Joseph of old stored up grain against a time of famine to save the house of Israel, and just as the record of Lehi and his children was preserved against a time of spiritual famine, indigenous peoples and cultures hold truths to teach us in this age of political, moral, and ecological turbulence. I'm a member of the Seneca Nation of Indians from New York. I grew up in a small branch on the Cattaraugus Indian Reservation. I'm grateful for my inheritance as a Seneca, as well as for the strength of my pioneer ancestors. I receive many blessings that come to me through those who chose the path of discipleship. I acknowledge with gratitude those who came before, who showed the way, and prepared the ground for my faith to flourish and opened the doors for the opportunities that have been mine. Similarly, I acknowledge that this campus is sacred ground. It has been set apart, consecrated, for our learning by study and also by faith. In that spirit, I hope to share with you a message that might help you to navigate the difficult days ahead and the many trials of your faith which will come as your lives unfold. We will each face the trials inherent to mortality, trials of physical frailty, mental illness, heartbreak, loss, political turmoil, and rampant injustice, and spiritual trials that will surely test our commitment to the Savior and His kingdom. College is a time of tremendous growth, intellectually and spiritually. We develop critical thinking skills and take in so much information. We wrestle before the Lord to develop and deepen our testimonies and flesh out our identities. In this age of abundant information and disinformation, how do we know where to turn as we refine our beliefs and mature our testimonies? And how do we respond as our faith passes through refining fires? My message to you today is that whatever your trials, mortal or spiritual, We can choose to trust in the Lord. While so much around us is inconstant and fleeting, He is faithful. He will never fail us. You may rely on His love as an unerring truth. In difficult times, you may find yourself asking, as the hymn does, Where can I turn for peace? Where is my solace when other sources cease to make me whole? Where, when my aching grows, where, when I languish, where in my need to know, where can I run? Where is the quiet hand to calm my anguish? Who can understand? He, only one.
My life experiences have taught me the truth of the hymn's answer. The Lord is there to quiet our anguish and to understand. He has prepared a path, opened doors, raised up friends and multiplied joys, even provided me with a female faculty flag football team. I have seen how these blessings have been tailored specifically for me, fitted to my particular needs. Many blessings were set in motion even long before my needs arose. So too has the adversary tailored opposition and trials fitted to my weakness. There have also been times when I have longed for the Lord's intervention in specific ways and have petitioned and pleaded with the Lord for blessings that have not been realized. There have been questions that have gone unanswered and times when the heavens felt silent. The adversary has tried in those moments to whisper that no one has heard my prayers. I have prayed and fasted for many years that the promise of my patriarchal and other blessings that I would find a companion and be a mother might be fulfilled. Those blessings have not been realized for me on my preferred timeline, despite my most fervent petitioning. But it has not been because no one heard my prayers. That was a lie. My Father in Heaven has heard and answered every prayer, even when the answers have been difficult for me. Of course, I've had a rich, happy, fulfilling life, and the Lord has poured out abundant blessings, meted out with the good measure of the Lord, pressed down and running over, far beyond my merits. But my life has not looked like the life I would have sought for myself. In coping with the Lord's counsel to wait or to do without, I have had to learn to choose to trust the Lord. I have had to choose to let these experiences refine and deepen my faith rather than to yield to the temptation to despair in the Lord or abandon my hope and faith. Everyone passes through fiery trials. I know that many of you, though you may be young, are, like the Savior, acquainted with grief. Many of you may be weighed down with your own sorrows, challenges, or disappointments. Some of you may be wrestling through questions concerning your faith. I know that the Savior is intimately acquainted with your grief and sees your sorrows. He has promised one day to wipe away all tears, and He will. But in the meantime, during those moments of fiery trial, how do we choose to trust in the Lord, especially when we may, for a time, feel alone? I hope that some of the lessons I'm learning might be of comfort to you now or in times of future need. In walking my path, I've been given the opportunity to choose to love and obey the Lord, even when I have felt sometimes forsaken. I'm learning that my faith in the Lord is not conditioned on getting what I want when I want it. Instead, I have had to work to develop trust and love for the Lord that is not transactional but is relational. I love him for who he is. I trust him and his love for me. He's my creator and my savior. I offer a few of the principles that have helped me to choose to trust the Lord in times of trial. I offer these principles humbly, knowing that you walk a path tailored for you, but confident in the constancy of the Lord.
First, I offer one lesson from the Seneca tradition. It's an idea found in many indigenous cultures in some form. It's called the seven generations principle. The seven generations principle means that in the Seneca culture, we are obliged to consider the consequences and outcomes of our choices on the next seven generations. It's a cultural value that entrenches taking the long view where possible and acting in the interests of the long term rather than the short term. The seven generations principle challenges us to pause to contemplate how our choices, multiplied and amplified through future generations, might affect our relationships with the Creator, with one another, and with the earth. It means we strive to keep an eye on the things of eternity, even, perhaps especially, in the midst of blinding mortal pain. How do we maintain that long view and choose to trust the Lord when the pain of our physical or spiritual trial is so acute and present, when the suffering is sore and stubborn? When I say keep an eye on the eternal in the midst of mortal pain, I mean that we should seek to keep our spiritual gaze fixed on the great eternal sacrifice, the infinite atonement of Jesus Christ. The adversary seeks to distract our focus entirely onto our temporal pain or tempt us to nourish up perceived slights and injustices, obscuring the Lord's love. That is one reason it is imperative that we partake each week of the sacrament, renewing our covenant to always remember the Savior. Just as he suffered— we will suffer as part of the mortal experience. In choosing to trust the Lord, we can consecrate our suffering to a greater understanding of His suffering and allow it to build in us a deeper capacity for compassion and mercy towards the suffering of others. Though He was perfect, He made Himself an offering of mercy to satisfy justice, and having drunk from that bitter cup, He knows how to succor and comfort us in our infirmities if we trust him. As Alma taught his son Helaman, I do know that whosoever shall put their trust in God shall be supported in their trials and their troubles and their afflictions and shall be lifted up at the last day. Clearly, putting our trust in God does not spare us from trials, troubles, or affliction. Rather, God has promised to support us in those mortal difficulties. Elder Neil A. Maxwell taught us of our trials that rather than simply passing through these things, they must pass through us and do so in ways which sanctify these experiences for our good. Taking the long view, as the Seneca culture counsels, and choosing to trust the Lord and His eternal timeline can help us pass through our trials and let the trials pass through us without abandoning our faith or our kindness but deepening them. In addition to the seven generations principle of taking the long view, Midas suggests a second principle that seems especially relevant to the successful navigation of our trials. I take this principle from Jacob's plea to the wavering Nephites. He urged, Seek not to counsel the Lord, but to take counsel from his hand. If you're like me, you're full of great ideas, hopes, and dreams about how your lives ought to go the timing of change or the fulfillment of blessings in our lives, jobs or other experiences we might enjoy, opportunities that we think would be a great fit and would help us to be happy. 
Indeed, we're commanded to ask the Lord for the desires of our hearts. We should plead with the, and petition the Lord for the experiences we desire with faith and with fasting where appropriate. That's a very different thing than seeking to counsel the Lord or resisting his counsel. Seeking to counsel the Lord, to me, means that we adjudge our wisdom and preferences to be superior to the Lord's. It reflects a fundamental lack of trust in his omniscience and omnipotence, but more importantly, in his perfect love. We might suppose that if we could only persuade the Lord to do things our way, life might be much improved. We may feel frustrated by what we deem his resistance to our counsel on such matters. Although I'm now a law professor, in my heart of hearts, by experience and inclination, I'm a civil rights lawyer. I loved working as an attorney enforcing the federal civil rights laws at the United States Department of Justice. I feel passionately about the rule of law and the pursuit of justice. I believe in the equal dignity of all of God's children. I mourn with those who mourn about the deep injustice that falls so disproportionately on people of color, on religious minorities, on our LGBT brothers and sisters, on immigrants and refugees and others. I believe my love for the equal dignity of all of God's children is one of the spiritual gifts he has given me. But as much as I may love and seek after justice, I do not have anything to teach the Lord about justice. He does not need my counsel as an advocate about how to bless and provide for his children or about how to order his kingdom. He sees the end from the beginning, and there is not anything save he knows it. One title for an attorney is counselor. In my roles as an attorney and as a law professor, I offer counsel to others that draws upon my study and professional judgment. With the credentials of my education and experiences comes trust. Some attorneys earn thousands of dollars an hour for their counsel. Not me, by the way. (laughs) Despite how expensive law school feels to law students, I would much rather be here with you. But as attorneys... We come to think our counsel has tremendous value to help resolve problems and address challenges, and it can. You, too, as educated individuals, are earning credentials and have experiences that are shaping and informing your judgment. Those credentials will give weight and amplification to your views in society and will add value to resolving the many varied problems, personal and professional, that you'll face. Those of us who have responsibilities for your education are eager for you to develop sound, critical thinking skills and judgment. Whatever your field of study, I have no doubt that you will contribute your learning and good judgment to the inevitable and daunting challenges of your families, your employers, your communities, and your congregations. But as learned as we may become in whatever field, as much as our counsel has earthly value, We will never have knowledge or judgment that will exceed or augment the Lord's. This is why we should not seek to counsel the Lord, but to take counsel from his hand. Jacob warned against seeking to counsel the Lord because of what he called the cunning plan of the evil one, specifically targeting those of us who have had opportunities for learning. Jacob laments the vainness and the frailties and the foolishness of men when they're learned They think they're wise, and they hearken not unto the counsel of God, for they set it aside, supposing they know of themselves. 
Wherefore their wisdom is foolishness, and it profiteth them not, and they shall perish. But to be learned is good, if they hearken unto the counsels of God. We must not allow the great gift and blessing of our learning and education to divide us from his wisdom. Instead, let our learning deepen our trust in him and multiply the gifts we have to offer to him and his children. I've learned that he does not need to be persuaded to do good things or advised about how to give good gifts to his children. While there are many settings where he will draw upon our good judgment and learning to bless lives, we must remember that he does not need the best thinking of the wisest and brightest among us to augment his understanding. He already has all wisdom and all judgment. I will add here a warning about another great temptation we must guard against as those with the blessings of advanced education. Nephite society, including the Church, was stratified and destroyed because there became a great inequality in all the land. What caused the inequality? In part, the people began to be distinguished by ranks according to their riches and their chances of learning. The people who had money or who had chances for learning looked down on those who didn't. Let us never misappropriate the blessing of our education as a cause to vaunt ourselves over those who have not had the same opportunities we have had and certainly not to vaunt our wisdom over the Lord's. Rather, let us humbly consecrate our gifts to the Lord and let us serve and love his children no matter their circumstances, even when we do not understand the Lord's purposes. A long time ago, I was called as a missionary to the Texas-Houston Mission. The call said I should report to the MTC to prepare to teach the gospel in the English language. As my stake president set me apart as a missionary, I remember him saying these words, The language the Lord would like you to learn is the language of the Spirit. I knew that to learn the vocabulary and grammar of the language of the Spirit, I would need to study the scriptures and work to identify the promptings and understand the whisperings of the Holy Ghost. To receive counsel from the Lord, as Jacob instructs, we must develop our own fluency in the language of the Spirit. To try to learn that language, I undertook a deep study of the Book of Mormon. Once I arrived at the MTC, I enjoyed learning the principles of missionary work, but I kept wondering how I might say certain phrases in Spanish. When that happened, I told myself to keep focused on the tasks at hand, but my mind kept wandering back to the few Spanish phrases I knew and wondering about Spanish grammar and vocabulary. I eventually recognized that these unbidden thoughts were the whisperings of the Spirit, helping to prepare me to go to Houston, Texas, where there would be many people I would meet who would speak Spanish. So I went to the MTC bookstore and bought a copy of El Libro de Mormon and put it with my things, pleased that I had felt and recognized a prompting and sure that I would have the opportunity to share that book with someone as a missionary. When I arrived at the airport in Houston a few weeks later, My mission president, Clark Thorstenson, pulled me aside at the airport. He said, Sister Steele, the Lord has made it clear to me that he would like you to learn Spanish. I'm assigning you to the Spanish-speaking program. I felt like the Lord had been trying to whisper it to me all along somehow and was smiling that now I was in on the plan, too. (laughs) That evening, I wondered how I would ever learn Spanish, and I wished I could go back to the MTC. Then I remembered my Libro de Mormon. I took it out and began to read. 
my study of the Book of Mormon in preparing for my mission helped me to follow along. Yo nefi, habiendo nacido de buenos padres, buenos padres, goodly parents. At first I had no other books except the Book of Mormon to study the Spanish language, but I remembered the inspired counsel of my stake president that the language the Lord wanted me to learn was the language of the Spirit. I enlisted the Spirit, who it turns out speaks perfect Spanish, to, <laughs> to magnify my abilities and tutor me in both the Spanish language and the language of the Spirit, those two languages that would be crucial to my missionary service. A few months in, I had a companion from El Salvador, Hermana Sarabia. She was a great missionary and senior companion, and one day she said to me, Hermana, you're doing pretty good with Spanish, but you talk too much like a Book of Mormon. We don't really say, now behold, we rejoice to be in your home. (laughs) I have reflected a lot in the years since this experience about the way that calling unfolded. I know that the Lord is omniscient. Surely he knew that the people I was called to teach in Houston spoke Spanish and that I did not know Spanish back when my call was issued months earlier. So why did the Lord send me to Texas without MTC language training? At the time, if I were to have designed the experience for myself, I would have called me to learn Spanish in the MTC. But although I have the power of choice and autonomy in many things, I'm not the primary architect of my own life experiences. I'm called to trust that the Lord has a plan for my life, just as I know that He has a plan for yours. Both the big picture and the smaller details are within His infinite and loving calculus. As it worked out, the experience was tailored to draw upon my particular strengths and to fortify my particular weaknesses. The airport switcheroo meant that I could not lean upon my own capacities to learn Spanish as a purely intellectual exercise. I had to rely on the gifts and tutelage of the Spirit. I had to plead for the gift of tongues. I had to rely on the prayers of loved ones, the power of which I could feel, bringing words and phrases to my mind and loosing my tongue as I taught. The Lord foresaw that Spanish would be a great blessing in my life, but that learning to trust Him and rely on Him, learning the language of the Spirit, was an even more important lesson. Sometimes we are asked to submit to ongoing ambiguity or to a grueling lesson we would prefer not to learn. Such moments provide us with the opportunity to realize one of the purposes of our mortal experience, to choose to trust Him to bless us with the experiences we need rather than the experiences we might want. It is marvelous to contemplate that although He is the great God of the universe and the works of His hands are beyond our numbering, each of us is known and loved of Him. Indeed, we are graven in the palms of His hands. God's purposes for our lives ask us to learn to trust in His love and goodness, even in times when we feel alone, just as Jesus did. It does not mean that we do not keenly feel the full weight of the pain of our trials, just as Jesus did. He felt the hunger, thirst, fatigue, rejection, grief, pain, and loneliness of His mortal experiences. He even asked that the unimaginable weight of his burden of sorrow and pain be removed, if possible. Matthew records that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus told his disciples, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. The scripture tells us that so great was his suffering that after he went a little further, 
He fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. The experience of Jesus in Gethsemane teaches me that it is not a sin to desire that we be spared some experiences or to ask that our burdens be removed. The pain of those crossroads where our will and the Father's will diverge is profound. Nevertheless, Jesus modeled how such moments are best resolved by choosing because of our love for him to trust his will. We trust him by receiving the Lord's counsel rather than insisting that he take ours. The third principle I would urge you to adopt is to love abundantly. In most any situation we face, love really is the answer. We can trust that the will of the Lord for our lives is motivated entirely by perfect love. When we cannot understand the things that are happening or the things that are not happening, the one true constant is the perfect love of God. You can trust it entirely. Alma counseled the people of the church in his time to avoid contention and to have their hearts knit together in unity and love one towards another. I've found my happiness multiplied and my challenges dulled when I have opened my heart to be knit in loving ties to friends, colleagues, and family. The Savior commanded us to love even our enemies and to do good to those who despitefully use you. My life is not defined by the blessings I have not received, but by the abundance of love and the blessings that I have received. My maternal grandmother, Norma Seneca, was a great example of expansive, abundant love. She lived her whole life on the Cattaraugus Indian Reservation. Though her geographic frame of reference was limited, her understanding and wisdom were wide and deep. I especially admired her ability to take genuine, full-throated joy in the good things that happened to others. She never begrudged others their successes. She rejoiced with those who rejoiced. It was a habit of generosity of spirit that multiplied and expanded the happiness of her life, even in the many difficulties she endured. It's not always easy to love. I have often called upon the wise counsel my mother gave me when I was relating to her some perceived injustice I had suffered. I insisted that my grievances were justified. Knowing she could not undo the injustice, my mother advised me to throw a blanket of mercy over the situation. In essence, she advised me to love, to forgive, and to show mercy, even where I felt my demand for justice was valid. She urged me to let mercy pay the debt and satisfy my claims. That has saved me much anguish and provided me great relief when I've been able to heed it. Choosing to love is choosing to heal from the spiritual wounds inflicted by injustice and suffering. One important way that we magnify our love to others and to the Lord is through the words we speak. Many Native American creation stories describe the world's creation as having been brought about because the Creator spoke it. Speaking is, in a way, giving birth to ideas, forming and shaping our reality. Similarly, in the creation account in Genesis, we understand that God said, Let there be light, and there was light. One title for the Savior is the Word. Our words are powerful beyond measure. Words have the power of creation and healing, but they also have the power of destruction and wounding. 
Let us speak with abundant love and use the power that is ours to heal and build others, just as the Savior uses his. Most importantly, we should not place limits or conditions on the love we offer to our Father in heaven and his Son. But even when we have done so, withholding love or obedience, he stands ever ready to receive and heal us. As often as we will repent, he will forgive. His arms are ever outstretched. We can trust his love. Where can I turn for peace? Where is the quiet hand to calm my anguish? He answers privately, reaches my reaching. In my Gethsemane, Savior and friend, gentle the peace he finds for my beseeching. Constant he is and kind, love without end. My brothers and sisters, I testify that he is constant and kind. He is worthy of our trust and our adoration that we may choose to trust in him during times of doubt or difficulty is my prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Playing the Cards Dealt to You. We've just heard from Michael and Steele. After the break, we'll return with Ramona O. Hopkins for A Miracle in the Making, Finding the Meaning in Adversity. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is playing the cards dealt to you. Next is Ramona O. Hopkins, professor of psychology and neuroscience at the time of this address, titled A Miracle in the Making, Finding the Meaning in Adversity. When I was young, a young adult, about the age of many of you in this room, I had my life carefully planned out. I was going to become a registered nurse, meet the most handsome and charming man, get married in the temple, and have four children, and have a wonderful life, whatever that meant. I was well on my way. I met and married a terrific man. I had two sons. I was working as a nurse. My life was going according to my plan. July 11, 1981, was a classic Utah summer day with blue sky and sunshine, a day that starts out cool and crisp, but then the temperature rapidly climbs to the unbearable heat of summer, a harsh reminder that Utah is part of the desert southwest. I'd been married to my husband, Scott, for over six years. I was 25 years old and the mother of two sons ages two and four years. We were barbecuing in the backyard with our neighbors, and I remember thinking it was almost time to get ready to work the 3 to 11 p.m. shift as a nurse. Out of the blue, I heard someone yell, There is a child under your garage door. Scott went through the garage to try to get our automatic garage door off the child, and I ran into the house and called 911. This small child was my oldest son, Joshua. Scott tried to lift the heavy garage door up, but was unable to lift it alone. He continued to struggle to lift the bulky door with no success. Suddenly, he saw hands from the outside of the garage slip under the garage door to help lift it off Joshua. To this day, we do not know who those hands belong to. 
Josh was not breathing and did not have a pulse. Scott yelled for me to come help him. I could tell by the tone in his voice that I needed to hurry. I dropped the phone, ran outside, and began CPR, which the paramedics continued as soon as they arrived. Josh was transported to the hospital in extremely critical condition and once stable was taken by helicopter to Primary Children's Medical Center in Salt Lake City. We were told that he'd suffered a severe anoxia or lack of oxygen to his brain and the doctors did not know if he would live and if he lived it was unclear if he would be normal, whatever normal is, and as the lack of oxygen had likely caused brain injury. Joshua was admitted to the intensive care unit where he remained for about six weeks. He came off the mechanical ventilator and began to breathe on his own, but he was still comatose and did not wake up all at once and start talking like you see in the movies. One iconic day, one of Joshua's physicians told Scott and I that Josh could be released from the hospital and be admitted to a long-term care facility. The doctor indicated that it was possible that Josh would not walk or talk again, and they did not know if he would be able to attend a regular school, if he ever attended any school at all. Further, the doctor indicated to us that we may want to consider placing Josh in an institution that could provide the full-time care he would require. The doctor offered to provide us a list of appropriate facilities that Josh's condition would demand. This hit us like a brick. We had not planned on nor had the thought crossed our mind that our son would not be coming home with us and we may need to place him in an institution. This is something we simply chose not to consider and it certainly was not part of my newly modified life plan. We were young, untrained, and unprepared for the drastic changes and extreme challenges that had come uninvited into our relatively calm life. Even though I was a nurse and thought I knew what to expect, I was wrong. We were completely overwhelmed, but we learned to manage our life by taking it one day at a time. Two days was beyond our ability to cope or manage. We took Joshua home and proceeded to embark on a daily course of laborious physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, cognitive rehabilitation, not to mention having to feed, dress, bathe, and change diapers on a four-year-old. We had the support from our families, neighbors, and many friends, and even people we did not know, but still the days were long hard and exhausting. Progress for Joshua was slow. Occasionally I would wonder why this happened to a small, fragile four-year-old boy, to me, to our family. In Doctrine and Covenants section 122, verse 7, it states, And if thou shouldst be cast into the pit or into the hands of murderers, and the sentence of death passed upon thee, If thou be cast into the deep, if the billowing surge conspire against thee, if fierce winds become thine enemy, if the heavens gather blackness and all the elements combine to hedge up the way, and above all, if the very jaws of hell shall gape open the mouth wide after thee, know thou, my son, that all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good." All of us will experience difficult challenges in life. 
how you deal and overcome with adversity is what is important. Randy Pausch, a computer science professor at Carnegie Mellon University, who was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, stated in his book, The Last Lecture, we cannot change the cards we are dealt, just how we play the hand. Approximately one year after Josh's accident, he attended his first day of kindergarten. Even though now Josh was walking using a walker, he couldn't be considered sure on his feet. He was talking, although his feet, speech was very slurred and difficult to understand. His kindergarten teacher, upon meeting Josh, asked if he was supposed to attend our neighborhood school or the district school for children with disabilities. We assured her that Josh was at the correct school, and she was at the very least a bit taken aback. However, she quickly regained her composure and over time became one of Josh's greatest champions. Joshua continued to slowly improve as he attended therapy. As his physical abilities improved, we added swimming, horseback riding, and skiing to our therapy schedule. Even though the rehabilitation regime seemed to be working, it was absolutely tiring to a small, skinny child. My days were full as a chauffeur, therapist, and nurse. During this time, I researched the effects of anoxia on the brain. I searched the rehabilitation research literature trying to find the therapy we needed to help Josh. I was surprised to learn there was very little practical information regarding rehabilitation following anoxic brain injury. Further, the existing literature stated that the outcomes following anoxic brain injury were bad, dismal to be exact. I thought that maybe I needed to look at the basic science literature on anoxia. There were scientific articles that discussed the possible mechanisms of the anoxic brain injury. A few articles that provided information about anoxia and associated cognitive, neurological, behavioral, and motor morbidities, of which I was already well acquainted. None of the articles provided information regarding how to best help Joshua. I was frustrated, tired, and felt I had reached a dead end. A typical daily schedule for me involved getting myself up and ready, feeding and dressing my two-year-old, then feeding and dressing Joshua so we could drive to Primary Children's Medical Center for physical therapy, occupational therapy, and speech therapy. We would spend four to six long hours at the hospital every day and then come home to start dinner, do laundry, clean the house, and do our therapy homework. Yes, more therapy. One day I was home at noon eating lunch and I turned on the TV. I have no idea why I was home that day. There on one of the channels was Jane Russell, an actress from the 1940s and 1950s, but I knew her from the TV commercials that she did for the Cross Your Heart Bra, and frankly that did not inspire much respect nor confidence. Jane Russell was on a TV talk show talking about the adoption agency she had founded, the World Adoption International Fund, which helps find homes for children. In the program, Jane Russell stated something to the effect of, if God wants you to do something, sometimes he rubs your nose in it. I knew at that moment I needed to return to school and earn a doctorate degree so I could study the effects of lack of oxygen on the brain. This was a startling thought since I had no idea where to begin. 
In talking with a friend, he suggested that I talk to a professor at the University of Utah. I called and made an appointment. We had a long conversation about my interests in graduate school. He encouraged me to apply to the doctoral program in psychology. This was madness. We had no time, little money, mounting medical bills, and I had the equivalent of a full-time job taking care of Joshua and taking him to therapy every day. Scott and I discussed it, thought it over, and prayed about it, and the feeling remained that I should attend graduate school. I applied for the Ph.D. program. I was not accepted. I was very depressed by this news. I knew this was what I was supposed to do. When I asked why I was not accepted to the program, I was told I had no psychology background and they had no basis on which to judge whether I could succeed in the graduate program. It was true. These were facts. I was a nurse. In talking again to the faculty member, he suggested that over the next year I should take some undergraduate psychology courses and a graduate course and then reapply to the doctoral program. I followed his advice, did well in my coursework, reapplied, and was admitted to the psychology doctoral program the following fall. This was the beginning of a long journey, and along the way I have learned many lessons, important lessons. Education and learning are one of those lessons. One lesson that was reinforced by this experience was the importance of education and lifelong learning. My father, a former BYU professor, had five daughters and two sons. I'm sure he would have preferred five sons, but life sometimes gives you what you need, not what you think you want. Education was always very important to him, and he taught all of his children the importance of obtaining an education. All seven of his children have earned a bachelor's degree, and three of us have earned advanced degrees. When my now-husband Scott asked my father's permission to marry me, my father's response was not, how will you provide for my daughter, but rather, how will you see that she completes her education? Scott assured him that he would see that I did. I don't think he bargained for two advanced degrees at the time. In the Doctrine and Covenants, section 88, verse 118, it says, Seek ye out of the best books, words of wisdom, seek learning, even by study and also by faith. Education includes formal classroom education, lessons learned from missions, church callings, travel, parenting, and experience in both secular and gospel knowledge. Elter Monty J. Bro, in a message published in the Ensign in August of 2006, stated, Many of the most important principles of intelligence cannot be taught at universities, from books, or through other temporal learning processes. Often these great principles are learned from afflictions, tribulations, and other mortal experiences. All that we learn in the manner will benefit us not only in this life but also in the next. For whatever principle of intelligence we attain unto in this life, it will rise with us in the resurrection. I completed my doctorate degree and continued to study the cognitive, psychological, and quality of life outcomes following anoxia and other medical disorders in order to improve outcomes for individuals and their families. An important lesson that Scott and I have learned from the changes and challenges brought in our lives after Josh's accident is to keep a sense of humor. 
When life gets difficult, the tough find the humor. In an article in the March 2000 Ensign by Brad Wilcox entitled, If We Can Laugh at It, We Can Live With It, he writes that humor can help us cope with adversity, help us heal, improve our relationships with each other, and provide a needed perspective on life. My mother had a wonderful sense of humor. When I was in high school, unbeknownst to any of us children, Mom and Dad decided to redecorate the living room and the kitchen. Upon returning home from school one day, we arrived home to find royal purple carpet in the living room and bright blue, green, yellow flower drapes in the kitchen. Not just bright, but very bright, the Provo version of Hawaiian Aloha Floral. (laughs) My mother loved the floral drapes. While none of us children were particularly fond of the drapes, my sister Christy was very vocal about it and made it quite clear that she thought the drapes were especially ugly. On most of her visits home to see Mom and Dad, Christy would tell Mom that she should definitely replace those hideous drapes. Mom, in return, told Christy that the kitchen drapes were to be a large part of her inheritance. <laughs> and be sure to remember to take them when the time came. One day in May of 2003, about two weeks before my mother passed away unexpectedly, Mom and I were making plans to redecorate our kitchen. Mom said that when we purchased the new drapes, we should take the old ones down and make shorts out of the drapes for everyone in Christie's family, <laughs> just like Maria did for the Von Trapp children <laughs> in the Rodgers and Hammerstein 1959 musical, The Sound of Music. After Mom passed away, Christie did in fact receive the drapes as part of her inheritance, as Mom had wished even though it was a joke. At a family reunion the following summer, Christy, Jim, and their children, when they arrived at the reunion, got out of their car and were wearing stylish, bright blue, green, and yellow floral handmade shorts. The importance of service is another lesson learned. An act of service can have long-lasting effects and touch many lives. I learned service from my parents, a lesson which was refined and enlarged by Josh's accident in receiving service, and by later serving my parents after their health fell due to Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease. There was rarely a day that went by that my mother didn't call, checking on each one of her children, particularly her daughters. She would always start the phone conversation with, Ramona, it's your mother a statement that was not needed as I knew immediately who was calling. In a message published in the New Era magazine in April of 2009, President Henry B. Eyring of the First Presidency said, The Lord and His Church have always encouraged education to increase our ability to serve Him and our Heavenly Father's children. For each of us, whatever our talents, He has service for us to give, and to do it well always involves learning, not once or for a limited time, but continually. Mom was always serving others, especially her family. Mom was also a registered nurse and frequently used her nursing skills to help people in our family, ward, and neighborhood. For several years, two neighborhood boys would stop by the house in the morning before school to receive their required injections. 
Mom always found a way to serve, often without being asked. During Josh's rehabilitation, our two-year-old son Travis was faced with a difficult choice of going with me to the hospital for long, tedious hours of rehabilitation for his brother or spending the day with Grandma. Most of the time, he chose Grandma. Travis was a very talkative two-year-old, and like most two-year-olds, much of what they say is understandable only to them. He was very inquisitive. He wanted to know how things worked and why, how birds fly, and why we breathe air. He could talk all day long without tiring. At the end of one such day, Mom was pretty much worn out, but she still had to be a mother to my three youngest sisters. As my sisters arrived home from school, she told them firmly, yet lovingly, that no one was to talk to her for at least 30 minutes. She needed some quiet time to relax and reflect and recuperate. Josh's experience has taught us all that each individual needs some quiet time to think, ponder, and reflect. It is especially important to make time for our reflection and gratitude, even when we're dealing with adversity, to reflect on the many ways we are blessed in this life. Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist and an Austrian Jew during the Second World War. He had a visa to immigrate to the United States, but decided to stay in Austria to stay with and protect his parents from the Nazis and the concentration or extermination camps. Dr. Frankel's books, Man's Search for Meaning, details his and others' experiences as prisoners in Auschwitz and other camps. Dr. Frankel describes the shock, humiliation, apathy, depersonalization that he and other prisoners experienced and their reactions to their experience in the concentration and extermination camps. He describes their arrival at the camps in overcrowded cattle cars, loss of all possessions, including clothing and hair, starvation, overwork, and many other hardships that were endured for years if they survived in the camps. Dr. Frankel wrote also about some individuals who did not allow the situation and their treatment in the camps to dehumanize them. He wrote, We who lived in the concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. We can choose our response to adversity. We can be bitter and angry. We can choose to let it fester, canker, and destroy who we are. Or we can learn to love, forgive, accept, and learn from our fate and forget ourselves in the service of others. While the road was and is hard and long. It has been a little over 30 years since Joshua's accident. We have gone through good times and bad, successes and failure. We have grown close as a family. The experience, although something I would never want to happen to anyone, has been of refinement, change, and I hope improvement. We have learned patience and love And as the day-to-day challenges present themselves to us, we realize they are not as large, and although sometimes inconvenient and poorly timed, we are able to overcome and move forward. 
Even when the occasional major stumbling block shows up on our doorstep, we face it head-on and realize it's probably not as difficult as something we've already been through. The refiner's fire burns bright. It is up to us to decide if it will consume us or mold us into something new, something better, something great. You may be wondering what happened to our two sons. Joshua graduated from high school and served an honorable mission to the Oregon-Portland Mission. He attended a singles ward where he met and married a wonderful young woman, Callie. Josh and Callie have two children, our only granddaughter, and a four-month-old son. Travis used his advanced conversational skills serving a mission to the Cambodian-speaking Pennsylvania-Philadelphia mission. He, too, met his eternal companion, Marcy, at a singles ward and recently had their third son, our fifth grandchild. Both of our sons and their families live close enough to us that we see them often and are able to watch and smile as the miracle continues. Elder Dallin H. Oaks, in a message published in the November Enzyme of 2006, stated, Healing blessings come in many ways, each suited to our individual needs, as known to him who loves us best. Sometimes the healing cures our illness or lifts our burden. But sometimes we are healed by being given strength or understanding or patience to bear the burdens placed upon us. The healing power of the Lord Jesus Christ, whether it removes our burdens or strengthens us to endure and live with them like the Apostle Paul, is available for every affliction in mortality. The Prophet Joseph Smith, while he was a prisoner in the Liberty Jail, received the following reassurance about adversities and trials of life. Doctrine and Covenants section 121, verse 7, My son, peace unto thy soul. Thine adversity and thine affliction shall be but a small moment. Adversity in some form will likely come into all our lives. For some of us it might be a light dusting, while for others it may appear as an insurmountable, all-encompassing avalanche. If we rely on the Lord, we can not only survive adversity, we can learn, grow, and thrive. It is my hope and prayer that each of us will not only triumph over the adversity in our lives, but we will be able to serve and lighten others' burdens. I say this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Playing the Cards Dealt to You, with thoughts from Michael N. Steele and Ramona O. Hopkins. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.